In this episode of Full Stack Radio, Frank DeYunga and I continue our event sourcing discussion from episode 85, this time going deep into how to implement event sourcing using Frank's library, Event Sauce. This is Full Stack Radio, episode 95. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Full Stack Radio Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Wathen, and today it's my pleasure to be welcoming back to the show, Frank DeYunga. How's it going, Frank? Pretty good. Thank you for having me. So uh, for anybody who is listening to this episode and hasn't listened to the previous episode that we did, I would highly recommend going back and listening to episode 85 of the podcast before listening to this one, uh, which was a really kind of thorough overview and introduction uh, to event sourcing, which is what we're going to be continuing to talk about today. So today is kind of the part two of that conversation. So definitely check that one out first uh, if you haven't listened to it. But today, I think what would be fun to do is to get deep into Event Sauce, which is an event sourcing library uh, that you released. I don't know. I'm sure. I bet it's probably been like a year or something now because time <laughs> goes by so fast. Uh, it feels like these days. But uh, why don't you tell me a little bit about kind of the history uh, of the project and then we can get into some of the details about how it works and how it helps you implement uh, some of these ideas. Yeah, cool. Um, so I started uh, working on event sauce. Uh, I think um, like the tiniest bit of it, uh, like the uh, in conception or inception of it was uh, late, like very, very late last year. Okay. Then um, over the course of, I think was um, January and February where I uh, uh, sort of like formalized a couple of concepts and um, I had some um, uh, like modeling sessions with, uh, with the Rostock um, who lives like in uh, like a an half an hour bike ride, like on my motorcycle away from me, uh, to like challenge some of the design aspects of how I set things up, and um, that kind of formalized a lot of the concepts. And uh, then I'm looking at the GitHub uh, first tag that's on uh, March uh, seven, actually. So it's only couple of months cool uh, yeah awesome so event sauce is a, a php library for um event sourcing that it's framework agnostic right like it's not meant to be used in any specific environment necessarily correct correct so it's like it's a bare bones thing it doesn't like the core of it is basically doesn't have storage it doesn't have any uh, queuing stuff it doesn't have framework bindings uh, it does have some other stuff, like uh, out of the box, it uh, ships with uh, uh, some sort of base classes to provide easy um, uh, test tooling. Um, okay. So, like, you can uh, pretty neatly do a TDD setup uh, with event sourcing, uh, with event sauce, and, and you'll be set up in like a matter of moments. So that's pretty powerful. Um, but in terms of um, storage adapters or whatever you want to call them or bindings or framework bindings, that's basically like there's nothing that ships with that. There's a uh, doctrine 
um, binding for for uh, like the event storage, um, and there's one uh, RabbitMQ uh, uh, dispatcher, uh, and I've just open sourced that because I've used those in the past, and yeah, uh, and also to provide like a reference implementation of uh, to to let people uh, see like how how does one set up a thing like that for sure. Cool. So, so why don't we start by maybe talking about what all the pieces are um, that the framework, or sorry, that the library sort of gives you, um, so we can help people kind of get a better understanding of like what sort of classes and stuff they're going to end up having, and, and how things are going to uh, kind of work in their application in a really practical sense if they want to implement some of the ideas and stuff that we that we talked about in our, our last conversation. So uh, maybe maybe what we can do is, is start with just kind of the, the first piece that you want to talk about and kind of talk about that a little bit in depth and just kind of work our way through, through all the things uh, that you're either expected to implement or that are provided for you and uh, just kind of talk about how they work and, and how you use them as we go. Uh, so yeah. so what's kind of the, the first piece that you think is worth worth talking about and understanding? Well, we can tackle this from two uh, two two places. Um, if we're start, uh, we're talking about uh, starting to model, then the aggregate route, uh, which is something that you need to implement, um, is a good starting point. But we can also tackle it from the more infrastructural side. So there's two sort of main groups that you need to mm-hmm. uh, to get into. Um, I think. Um, in order to have a better understanding why uh, why we're storing things or dispatching things, I'm, I think it makes sense to um, start with the aggregate route first. Sure. Uh, since that's also like the main piece of interaction that people uh, uh, will work with. So, um, so maybe just just to reiterate from from our last conversation, it'd be worth quickly defining what what an aggregate route is at a high level and maybe giving picking an example of something that we can use as, as a reference um, to talk about. So the aggregate route is um, a route of a model and the, the you can have multiple uh, aggregates within that model and aggregates basically something with a life cycle. Um, so things happen to that which are expressed in events um, and those events are uh, persisted and dispatched. Um, in terms of the outside world interacting with that uh, with that model, um, it's basically uh, you can see that as sort of uh, your uh, your access point. So if it's an onboarding process and you start the onboarding process, you basically call the method start on the onboarding process aggregate route. Or if it's uh, more like entity modeling. Uh, so, for example, if you have um, maybe a silly example, but if you have a blog post and you want to uh, publish it, uh, then the blog post would be uh, the aggregate route, and you would call the publish method, which would result in a uh, blog post was published event. Got so it. that's basically like it's your entry point to speaking with. Uh, uh, with the model as a whole. Got it. So when you have, um, so let's just use the blog post example. It's kind of the canonical, stupid web dev 
talking point example that everyone uses for everything. Um, so if we're, if we're using that example, then a blog post is going to implement this aggregate root uh, interface that Correct. comes with event sauce. Uh, yeah. So so what does that involve? So the aggregate root um, interface basically requires you to implement a couple of methods. Uh, there are also uh, traits provided in order for, uh, for the aggregate to basically have a default implementation um, of all the uh, required methods of the interface. And basically what the aggregate root needs to do in order to be tied to event sauce is be able to uh, reconstitute itself. Uh, reconstituting is uh, what's commonly referred to as like constructing yourself um, using a uh, collection of events. So um, changes in an aggregate route are expressed in events and those events are used uh, to be able uh, to uh, reconstruct themselves. Got it. So, so, so I'm looking at the code right now to try and get a better understanding mm -hmm. of, uh, of what we're talking about and hopefully we can do a decent job uh, explaining this stuff uh, without being able to show it. Mm -hmm. But it sounds like um, the piece that we're talking about now is a there's if you if you extend kind of like the base one that ships with uh, event sauce to try and make things easy for yourself you get like like a static named constructor basically on your aggregate root called reconstitute from events uh, that right, takes yeah. the ID of you know in this case the blog post that we're trying to kind of rebuild from the events and then a uh, generator which i'm guessing is some sort of class responsible for sort of uh finding the events related to the uh this particular aggregate route and kind of feeding them into it so they can be applied to reconstitute the model is that is that the right way of thinking about it um so the generator is actually the the thing that's supplied by um uh, PHP itself. Like okay. if you yield, you get back a generator. Got it. Um, and so basically, uh, you can see a generator as a stream of things that may not have been created or sure. retrieved yet. And you can just consume them as they come until uh, there is nothing left. Got it. And the so, idea there, I guess, for, for anyone who hasn't worked with generators before, and I haven't really worked with them much in PHP, to be honest, but um, from a consumer's perspective, it's not really that much different than working with an array, right? It's just like the underlying implementation is designed so that you don't have to have everything in memory necessarily, and you can be like a little bit more uh, performance conscious about what you're doing. Correct, correct. That's uh, that's uh, half of it. Okay. Uh, the other half is um, something that's really nifty about uh, being able to use generators uh, transparently, um, you can have multiple places where you create or return a generator, and that place can also consume another generator. And that might sound sound a little abstract, but what you can actually do in such a in such a situation is if you have a stream of events, you can transform that in place and generate another stream of events. Um, this could be uh, helpful in case you want to either uh, alter the um, uh, the structure of a event if it was uh, faulty at the past, so it gives you 
uh, a chance to do some uh, uh, corrections there, uh, which is um, a more pragmatic approach to uh, doing things like that. You can also, um, if you had a very big event, and in your new model you found uh, usefulness for splitting up in multiple events, what you could do is at that one um, point where you consume the generator, you can say, well, I'm going to consume one event here, but I'm going to yield two. Mm -hmm. And that's completely transparent for the, for the aggregate route. So the aggregate route does not know this uh, transformation um, has happened or is happening. It yeah. just knows I'm, I'm getting a, a stream of events. Got like in this, um, this transformation is usually referred to as uh, upcasting. Okay. So, so it's almost yeah. like by using generators for this sort of thing, you, you've created an opportunity to have like what's almost conceptually like a middleware or something like in the, in the yeah. loop that lets you kind of like do transformations and, and stuff like that, which is, is kind of a neat way to, to provide the ability to, to sort of control that behavior yourself. Yeah. Like if we, if we take that uh, middleware, classical middleware and uh, concept, it would be sort of the model equivalent of getting one HTTP request and redispatching two new HTTP requests uh, if yeah. needed, uh, but you could also do it the same way around. Like you can retrieve the one um, HTTP request, but wait for the second one. Uh, and kind of combine them to yield a single in, event. Correct. So yeah. you can basically um, sort of fold or uh, expand uh, that stream of events if needed. And that's a pretty powerful concept that's, uh, purely um, possible by using generators. Cool. Like there's nothing in, in PHP land that really provides that same um, level of control like yeah. that Very in cool. a stream. It's like either you would have to use the entire collection, which is of course not ideal for memory consumption, um, but this way you can just uh, avoid having to do that. Very cool. So these um these events, I think maybe like a good way to talk about this actually would just be kind of to go through some of this code conceptually from like this entry point maybe and talk about the interesting pieces that we hit um, as we go to make sure that we're, we're kind of understanding them. So um, the generator that's coming in that's yielding these events, are the events like event sauce specific classes or anything like that? Or, or what do the events look like? Uh, the events are basically just simple PHP objects. They're not uh, classically uh, plain old PHP objects because um, they are required to have um, to either implement an interface uh, for reconstruction as well. Uh, by default, uh, the reconstruction mechanism that's um, shipped uh, is very simple. It works as the same way. Uh, this reconstitute uh, method works. So you, you basically get a payload in, and it's the job of the class to construct itself from uh, the product of a JSON payload, basically. Got it. Okay, so, so these are events that, that the end user of the library is creating for their, their own application. So using the blog post publishing example, 
um, they might have used event sauce to create a blog post was published event or something. And does event sauce give you tools for like, like scaffolding out events and stuff like that? Or- uh, yeah, it does. Um, you can create commands and events, um, and you can create that using like a YAML syntax, um, which saves you a lot of typing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so basically, you can configure things like namespace with uh, na- the namespace of uh, where the uh, commands and events should reside. Uh, you supply the names and their fields. Um, so, like in the documentation, there is an example for uh, like a business process, uh, and it's uh, it's got things like subscribe to mailing list, unsubscribe from mailing list, and then the fields associated uh, in order. Uh, to actually be able to do uh, the work that's needed. So, and then events that come out are like user subscribed to mailing list, user unsubscribed from mailing list, things like that. Okay, makes sense. Okay, so so when you're reconstituting um, this aggregate route from the events, it looks like from an implementation perspective, what's happening is we're just kind of iterating over all the events from the first one that happened in the system up to... Uh, the most recent one, and then we're applying that event uh, to the aggregate root. So what what is the end user of the library responsible for um, when it comes to like applying an event to an aggregate? And what does event sauce do for you there? Right. So event sauce uh, allows you to basically specify how things um, are applied to you. Uh, by default, it will say uh, there's an event applying behavior that you can use, which is a trait that basically says, well, give me the, the class name without the namespace and then say apply and then class name. So just um, kind of dynamically dispatches it to a method based on some naming convention. Yep. And then it um, it's, uh, gives the event instance as the, the parameter. So what so, sort of work is the should the user be doing inside of these apply methods? Is it is it just like like setting up state on the aggregate root, like setting some private properties and, and stuff like that? Or would you ever be doing anything more complicated than that? No, it's basically only uh, supposed to do anything with states. So you're not supposed to touch the outside world when you're applying. The outside world interaction... Uh, should have been done in the initial action that led to an event and that event led to an application, uh, like led to applying the event in the aggregate route. So in this aggregate route, uh, for instance, um, if you have a blog post, like let's keep with that example. If if there's a a command that says, well, you need to publish this. Um, So if a blog post was previously not published, uh, which would be a private property in the aggregate route, like a published Boolean. Yeah. Uh, it would be not published. And then, so um, in the action that you would invoke on the aggregate route, the publish, you would check, well, is this, uh, if this is already published, then you could just ignore it. And uh, thereby you would create like an idempotent handling of a command, if that uh, makes yep. sense. Yep. Um, and if it's not uh, published, you would say, like, okay, now then we can say, well, uh, record that blog post was published. 
Got so it. we merely um, create that event. We don't mutate the state there. And then in the apply method, uh, this is where you mutate that state to uh, set the Boolean to the publish yeah. is true. So, so there's, there's kind of like two, two sides to the operation, right? We're kind of talking right there. We're kind of talking about like what has happened way before the whole reconstitution process. Like when the user actually took some action to publish the post and then on the reconstitution side, we're basically seeing, okay, there's a blog post was published event is one of the events that we need to use to rebuild the state of this blog post. And we're going to have a method like apply blog post was published. That's going to take that event as a parameter and inside that method. And in this case, it's so simple that you probably don't even have to actually look at any, any properties on the event itself. It's just a matter of saying like this published equals true sort of thing. And that, that event or that method is sort of, sort of over with. But I, I guess there's probably a lot of other situations that are maybe a little bit more complicated where you would want to use some information from the event. Like, like say, instead of storing a Boolean for the published, you wanted to actually keep track of the, the, the time and date that it was published at. Then instead of saying this published equals true, you might just be saying this published at equals event. And then how do you access stuff on events? Are they just methods that you add onto an event to get some data yep. from it? Yeah, so, so you can just the, say like the event published at or whatever and just kind of mirror that information over. Yeah, basically that's what you do. Like for example, if um, a, a good use case for event sourcing at all is also like uh, process modeling. So if you're in the process of doing like uh, seat reservations for a movie, uh, then at the uh, and the um, seats are actually um, an external system. Uh, in the um, in the initial, uh, like you could look up seat availability and record that, and then pick a seat. And within those two interactions, like the first interaction would be like to actually retrieve uh, what's available. You can um, that can be contained in the event. So um, seat availability um, uh, uh, was fetched uh, or um, yeah, let's go with that. Sure. And then in the next one, um, you could actually say, well, I want to prevent users from uh, booking or trying to book a seat that's uh, previously taken. So by applying the information from the events in the aggregate route, you could build up a model that could easily be like uh, available seats. And if uh, in the next um, in the next call, like uh, reserve a seat, you can check for that like array or whatever that's uh, suited for your for your case. You can check there and uh, guard that somebody's not double booking a seat. Mm-hmm. So that's how you use information from uh, events that happened in the past. Now, uh, like you apply it, so you are in the right state to make the decisions that you need to do in the upcoming actions. Got it. Okay. So, um, I th- that sounds like pretty straightforward, right? This whole idea of reconstituting, um, a model basically from the events that affected it. Um, so maybe like stepping out a layer, what does it look like to actually 
call this method? Like, are you usually calling this from your own code? Are you calling it from something that you've written to implement an interface in that event sauce provides to you? Uh, like where does this reconstitution usually happen in you know, like an event sauce using application? Yeah. So, um, the, there's such a thing called the aggregate root repository. Okay. It's basically the place uh, where you uh, fetch an aggregate by its aggregate root ID, and you get returned an instance of that aggregate root. Uh, by default, there is an implementation called the constructing aggregate root repository. And this aggregate root repository takes a class name, a message repository, and an option, optional uh, message dispatcher and decorator. Um, and this is basically the point of interaction that uh, the outside or that you're um, like you can access this from uh, like a command handler or if it's small you can even do it just in a controller you basically get the aggregate root repository retrieve an aggregate root uh, perform an action and then uh, you persist the aggregate root and persisting an aggregate root basically means um, you retrieve all the newly released events and you persist those in the database. Okay, so I think um, I don't want to get too distracted talking about like the, the persisting side yet because I think there's a lot to talk about there. Mm -hmm. But I want to make sure that we're trying to make sure that we have like a clear separation in people's minds between like what's happening on the retrieval side and the per persisting side because from my understanding with like an event sourcing sort of architecture, those things are, are quite separated for, in a lot of ways. Um, but maybe I'm not quite right on that, but we'll, we'll kind of see. <laughs> um, so again, I'm looking at this code now for this constructing aggregate root repository, which is like you've been saying this whole time, everything is really simple and really easy to read the code and, and understand um, yeah. what's going on. So like you're saying, you basically ask this class, give me back the aggregate root uh, for this ID. And, and mm -hmm. in this case, it looks like we are using, um, like IDs are actually objects in event yeah. sauce, not just, um, you know, like a simple integer or uh, whatever. What's the, what's the motivation for that? What does that buy you? Uh, that's uh, like an integer or something like a UUID. Um, could be used to identify an, a number of things. Uh, having an interface that you implement uh, allows you to have um, an object that represents uh, the ID. So like a UUID could represent a user, but it could also uh, um, represent a blog post. Uh, so by having that as a class, you kind of, again, the possibility of making that explicit. So you have a user ID, which is an object, um, and a blog post ID. And yeah. um, by making that more explicit, especially when it comes to UUIDs, uh, it, it makes it very hard to uh, mistake one for the other. Got it. Yeah, that makes sense to me. And uh, 
I'm sure that helps with troubleshooting things and stuff like that. If you're ever looking at a stack trace or something, instead of just seeing a string and thinking and trying to map that back to something for go, okay, what am I actually looking at here? What's gone wrong? You can kind of see, okay, this was an aggregate root ID that I was passing around, help you understand the system a little bit faster for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a lot of clarity and also like if you have a stack trace and there's a UUID in there, then uh, yeah, that's going to explode uh, your terminal or whatever your log <laughs> file, yeah. Like crazy. So uh, yeah, you're uh, you're gonna want to know at least what type. Got um, it. Yeah. Okay. So um, yeah. So you you basically ask this repository for the aggregate root by its ID, and then its job is you know, simply to to basically call this reconstitute from events method on the right class for you after basically getting or creating the generator for you that's going to retrieve these events and that it looks like that just comes from another repository which is the message repository in this case so uh, messages what's the difference between a message and an event so a message is kind of sort of um, the stuff that you broadcast along systems Uh, an event is more like the the payload of what happens so you can sort of see the message as more like an envelope class mm-hmm. uh, that holds the events, but also uh, holds metadata that uh, might be relevant for your system, but not necessarily for your core Got it. Uh, domain. So it gives you a place to store anything um, that's maybe specific to the fact that you fetched the event through this repository and not from another repository or... Um, you know, or it, you could uh, like you could add uh, an ID for an event, which is normally if you have that in the event, basically you're creating IDs everywhere. Um, that has a number of drawbacks because creating uh, IDs inside of aggregates makes your system harder uh, to test because um, creating an ID like UUIDs is a random thing. So it's uh, harder to set expectations uh, for that. Sure. Um, but um, more specifically, you can uh, you can add those as like uh, metadata inside um, uh, inside the message. So you can uh, do event tracing uh, using that. So if you have uh, a command that has a traceable ID, you could uh, populate all the uh, events or the messages that are the result of the events with that same ID, and therefore you can sort of associate what the effect of a particular command was. Yeah. That's very powerful. So you, you can sort of associate multiple messages across a timeline and see what happened together and what didn't, or when was when did something. Uh, start like sometimes the um, a particular recording of something happens um, for a longer time. Uh, like if you have background processes and, uh, or slow operations, you could also time things and stuff like that. But uh, yeah, anything that you want to not pollute your uh, knowledge uh, or your events with. Uh, but is useful to you, uh, the message sort of provides a place to uh, to allocate that. Got it. 
Just wanted to take a quick break to thank one of our sponsors this week, and that is Netlify. So whenever I'm telling someone about Netlify, I describe it as basically static site hosting taken to the next level. Uh, here's how it works. You just head over to Netlify.com and create your account for free. Then you click new site, connect your Git provider of choice, like GitHub, for example, and then you just choose the repository that you want to deploy. Tell Netlify what the build command is for that site, like NPM run production, that sort of thing. Uh, tell Netlify what folder you want to serve so like the dist folder or the build folder, and then you're done. So Netlify will build and deploy your site to a permanent URL that it generates for you, and it'll automatically rebuild and redeploy the site anytime you push changes to the repository. Of course, you can configure your own custom domain for the site as well, and Netlify handles all that HTTPS stuff for you automatically using Let's Encrypt. Uh, so what makes this better than something like GitHub Pages, for example? Well, on top of just making it super easy to build and deploy your static sites using basically any technology, any static site generator that you want, Netlify includes some pretty amazing features that can make your static sites a lot more powerful. Uh, so Netlify lets you deploy Lambda functions that you can use with your static sites without even having to have an AWS account. Uh, they have built-in authentication features you can take advantage of, and they also have awesome support for form handling. Netlify is totally free to get started with. There's no time limit, bandwidth restrictions, no limit on the number of sites you can have, and you get access to all of the features I talked about. Uh, so if you've got a project that you want to try out on Netlify, head over to netlify.com full stack radio to get started and let them know who sent you or if you don't already have a project but want to try out netlify anyways you can head over to templates.netlify.com and grab one of their awesome free starter templates to get you started I've actually been using Netlify for a few months now on the Tailwind CSS documentation page. And one of the awesome things about it is that anytime someone submits a PR to the docs, Netlify automatically creates a site where I can preview that PR directly in the browser. So it's been a really good way for me to check out documentation PRs and make sure that everything looks good. Uh, thanks to Netlify for sponsoring Fullstack Radio this week. Back to the show. Okay, so it looks like the, the the only other piece here on the the sort of read or retrieval side um, is the message repository itself, which um, looking at the, the interface for that, it seems like, again, this is like a really simple thing. It has a retrieve all method that takes the aggregate root ID. It's going to find all of the messages which wrap up the events for this particular aggregate root. And it returns all that as uh, a ge another generator, like you've kind of said. So the um, aggregate root repository is iterating over the generator that it gets back from the message repository and returning its own generator that's being consumed by the reconstitute from events method on the actual class. So um, the interface is really simple, but what are what does an implementation usually uh, look like f for this? Uh, so... There's one implementation that shipped uh, with uh, the like core package of event sauce, and that's the in-memory um, message repository. Um, so and that's basically an an array that holds events, and if you persist message or it holds messages uh, that contain events, and uh, when you persist a collection of messages, it basically appends the messages to that uh, array. And when you retrieve it, just checks like, is the ID the same as the other ID? Um, and it will yield those messages. Sure. So, so if you were gonna write a, like a production implementation where you were storing the 
messages in a SQL database or something, this yeah. class um, that you write to implement this message repository would be the class that's actually talking to your database, fetching all the messages by ID and yielding those back sort of sorted by oldest message to, to most recent message. Correct, yeah. So this is where you could, like you could even, even uh, like in Laravel or Symfony or uh, Zend, you could just use whatever uh, sort of base uh, thing uh, is provided by the framework. Like uh, for Laravel, you could easily use the query builder and uh, I've done that. Like I'm, uh, I've been preparing for uh, the event sourcing, like pragmatic event sourcing workshop for uh, I think next uh, end of August, I guess, or a couple of weeks from now. Two weeks or something like And um, there I just use uh, the DB facades uh, to create the records and retrieve them. Uh, so like it can be as simple as that. Um, it's just storing adjacent payloads in a table, retrieving them, deserializing them, and uh, yielding them. Yeah, that's that's it. And are the messages they uh, they implement an event sauce interface too? I'm sure. Um, okay, so or, or do you just actually create an event sauce class? Uh, no, you uh, you create the messages. Um, and message there, is, is message a class provided by event sauce or an, in, an interface that you would oh, yeah. you would create? So the message itself is a final class, okay. and within that is an event, and the event all it needs to be is an object. Uh, so you can do whatever, but um, like you can be fully decoupled uh, from event source. Um, very easily. Uh, the only thing that you need to do is make sure that uh, the event serialization is the same on multiple sides. So yeah. if you have a, um, a message repository, obviously it needs to serialize the message from the object form uh, to the JSON payload um, and vice versa. Uh, so, what you can do is um, uh, like uh, just use the same message serializer for uh, both parts, and then that way you'll always construct and uh, or uh, construct and destruct to the same thing. Got it. And and the um, the deserialization is that something that you would be doing in your repository, your message repository? Yep. Okay. Yeah. So uh, you basically, like from the raw source, you get a, a, a string, right? You get a JSON string. So the job there is to um, uh, JSON decode that, um, then deserialize that uh, to an object, the object that it was. And there is some tooling uh, provided. So uh, in this case, and, and the example we've been using, you would, you'd have this JSON. Um, payload that you're getting back from the database maybe it has a field in there like type or something that you would use to say okay well this is a blog post was published event i'll take um everything in like maybe the payload key of this json structure json decode that 
use that as the payload to instantiate a new instance of the blog post was published event class that you could then apply to the actual aggregate. Yeah, correct. Like uh, by default, uh, the the stuff uh, that's shipped, which is a constructing, like it says the same uh, naming scheme, like constructing message serializer Mm. is a message serializer. And it uh, uses the header fields uh, to populate um, a aggregate root type and an aggregate uh, root ID field in order to be able to reconstitute um, the aggregate root and everything associated. Got it. Makes sense. So okay. so, that's so, like the meta stuff that you uh, uh, can use for yourself, but the system itself uses that as well. Yeah. So is that is that basically all the pieces on the uh, the sort of read side? Like I'm guessing um, at, the, at its most simple implementation, you might use your aggregate root repository like directly in a controller to fetch the aggregate root back based on the ID that came in as part of the request. Yeah. Um, by the time you've asked for it, it's totally been reconstituted and now you have like a fully ready to go um, model for you to work with yep. basically. Cool. So that's pretty simple, I think, on the on the read side. Mm-hmm. Um, the only question I guess I have is, we're talking about like the aggregate root, which oftentimes kind of is the entry point to other aggregates too, right? Like, am Correct. I using the terminology right there? I don't, yep. I'm not sure that that necessarily applies in our blog post example, but where are, where are you like reconstituting like the aggregates that are kind of part of the aggregate root or are those usually like properties on the aggregate root that you're going to reconstitute mm-hmm. as part of kind of rehydrating the aggregate root itself. Yeah. All right. So for, for this, we kind of needed a, a different uh, example model yeah. uh, than a blog post because um, multiple aggregates in a blog post is not super relevant. Uh, or like, uh, it could be like if it's comments, but I think we can do something better. Okay. If, if we have like a, um, uh, a team and we have members within that team uh, and each member could be assigned a task and we want to like uh, model that everybody is sort of working on a big task list, but we divide it uh, up in uh, smaller chunks. Like we're doing like a, a Jira clone kind of sure. thing. So if we have uh, that main task that's divided in subtasks, those subtasks uh, also have like a life cycle and the team members have life cycles too. It's like, uh, so a team member uh, could be an, uh, or is probably an aggregate within the aggregate root of, um, of that task. Yeah. Um, And so you could assign a team member a uh, task. So that means like you're delegating sort of work to a deeper part of your model. And basically you could uh, model this in whatever way. You don't need to use objects. You could use like scalar types and just a like a multidimensional array. But that's not really expressive. So basically what you could do is use an object-oriented metal with, uh, model within uh, the aggregate root. Uh, so you've actually got a team and you've got a tasks collection and you can assign a task uh, that comes from the tasks 
collection to a member that's part of the team. Mm. So, and that's more like normal plain old PHP yeah. object modeling. And wh- you can use where is the with- event being applied? I think is my question. Like, do you still have a method on like, if we're saying the aggregate root is the team itself, um, are you going to yeah. have a method on that class? Like apply um, team member was assigned task. Yeah. Okay. And, and that would use its own reference to a team member and a task um, that it's probably constructed through previous events. That was like task was added uh, or team member was added, that sort of thing. And now those exist in memory in the state on that object. You can find them based on whatever identifiers you use to do that. and Which are that, in your events. Yeah. And then uh, in that method that we're talking about, like apply um, team member was assigned task or whatever, you basically write whatever code makes you happy to to make it the application act as if like that that's the state right which might just be this team members find by id and you pass an id and that just does like a you know a find in the collection which is all in memory to get it back and then call some method on the team member like assign task or something and it does whatever it has to do doesn't as far as the you know from an event sourcing perspective doesn't really matter what you do at this point it's kind of up to you okay and that's also the powerful thing because if you imagine that, that the model that, uh, that you create there or reconstitute there uh, is not persisted, it also means you're uh, free to refactor it at will without any consequences, whatever. Yeah. So like the entire model can, like that data model, which is an application of a stream of events, can change radically. Like it it doesn't even have to look the same. Yeah. It does not have to be named the same. Uh, so uh, by using events as a storage, you're sort of decoupled from that structure, which is normally like if you are using either Active Record or Data Mapper, it doesn't matter. You kind of have this um, sort of coupling between the data layer and the, uh, the model layer and it's implicitly bound. Yeah. And by using events to express what has happened, you're completely decoupled from that. Yeah, because what has happened has happened. It, like, it can't really change, right? Yeah. Like, maybe you, maybe you might decide a year from now, like, I kind of wish we had, we had represented this event differently or something, but whatever, no big deal. You just have a method on your model that knows how to interpret that previous, you know, structure uh, in a way that makes sense now. And yeah, like you're saying, you can kind of do whatever you want at the in-memory point of this whole operation. Yeah, that's kind of interesting. There's a lot of flexibility there. Yeah, uh, like an immense amount of flexibility. So yeah, I guess that's the whole the whole read side then. So um, Well, there's, there's uh, something more to the read side, but it's probably good to cover it after the right okay. side. All right. So let's talk about it. Things from, from the right side. So say, say we fetch this blog post from our aggregate root repository. We haven't published it yet. And, um, in this request, th- this is the request that represents the user trying to actually initiate the publishing of, of this blog post. So our controller looks like, you know, it has a dependency on the aggregate root repository. It's fetched back our blog post 
and now we have to publish it somehow. So yep. what happens here um, in a, like a, at a code level perspective using event sauce? At a code level, uh, you would call the method publish. Got it. And like from the controller side, that would be it. Um, okay, so, so yeah, let's talk about what happens inside publish then. Yeah, so inside publish, um, you've got basically got a format like guard invariants, so like guard the business rules that uh, like need to be, something needs to be prevented if uh, some conditions are sure. met. So like some guard clauses, some, some sort of validating on the action to make sure that this is actually allowed to happen based on the current state. Correct, yeah. Um, when that is the case, um, you act, uh, and the act is uh, never the, the applying part, it's always the, like, acting uh, inside that would be like if you had external surfaces that you would also need to interact with, or uh, external, um, uh, yeah, just surfaces. Uh, for instance, if you have the business rule that on publish, it needs to be checked if there are not any forbidden words in the title or whatever. Sure. Uh, the uh, publish method call could accept as a parameter the forbidden uh, words catalog, which could be like an HTTP API or whatever. Yeah. So you take that as a, a method argument, you pass it um, uh, the title, and then like the result of that will influence like did it uh, succeed or did it uh, fail um, and when it does you raise events okay. so when it when it fails you could even record that to maybe see like how many times do people fail like it's nice for yeah so you can you can have an event like blog posts failed to publish due to you know invalid title or something yeah like somebody used a naughty word. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, so inside this publish method, um, you are doing a little bit of checking, making sure that you, you can publish it. And then uh, you have to somehow raise this event, uh, to the system. So like, and, and the event is going to be that same event that we were just talking about on the reconstitution side, which was like the blog post was, published event so can yeah. we talk a little bit about like first of all what it looks like to construct that event and what it means to like raise an event like what that actually looks like from a mechanical uh, perspective because yeah. i looking at the code now i can see that it's probably simpler than people think it will be based on kind of using terminology like raising events it sounds mm -hmm. like you're interacting with a lot of complex infrastructure, but it, it, I think it's actually a lot simpler than that. It is uh, a lot simpler, So, yeah. So what does it look like to actually create and raise this event inside the publish method? All right. So when you want to record an event, you basically uh, construct the event because the events are just simple objects. They're simple to construct. So you construct them within um, the aggregate route and um, the default implementation uh, that EventSauce uh, ships with has an event recording behavior trait that you can use. Uh, and it basically um, allows you to say, well, this, uh, like dollar sign this, and then record that, and then new, and then the, the 
event name yeah. that you want to record. So in our and case, then, it might be like a new blog post was published and maybe the only argument that that takes is like the time that it was published at or something. Or yeah. maybe it takes nothing if you don't actually care about the time because the event probably has a timestamp on yeah. it anyways. Uh, or yeah, maybe it takes is, a bunch uh, more stuff. This is a case where like if it's just a publish action, um, it would be relatively simple. But like if it's unpublish, you, you might want to specify a reason. Uh, yep. So like uh, pull a, blo a blog post from blog uh, that could result in uh, blog post was unpublished for reason, and then you yeah. supply the reason. So in that case, like unpublish, the unpublished method on the blog post would take an argument like reason, and then you would sort of thread that argument into the event that you create. So you would yeah. say like, you know, blog post unpublished, pass through the reason, and then inside unpublished, you would say this record that new blog post was unpublished, pass through the reason that you got as a parameter in the unpublished method. Correct. Got yeah. it. So what so happens when you record that an event happened inside of an yeah. aggregate? So the first step that happens is uh, directly when you record it, the uh, apply method that we also know from reconstituting is also invoked with the, with the same event. Uh, so this means that as soon as you record it, uh, and record is just, uh, it's hold, uh, held in memory uh, in the aggregate route to be released later. And released is what happens when um, you basically um, get all the things that were newly released. Um, so first, the, it's, uh, the event is applied and then it's staged sort of uh, for uh, release uh, later. So you can have one or multiple events that are uh, recorded before you actually uh, go ahead and uh, dispatch uh, or um, persist the aggregate. Got it. So the one question that I have here, which is maybe a little bit of a distraction from the conversation, but I think is <laughs> it's on my mind is, is there like a potential like race condition problem here where like if you have two requests coming in that are trying to modify like the same aggregate, one gets reconstituted from its events, um, it applies an event, something happens, but before that event actually got recorded, another instance of it was reconstituted from those events and it's recording that an event happened. It's trying to apply that event on top of this stack of events, but it doesn't know that maybe there's a new event or two in between what it was reconstituted from and where the new event is being applied. Is that like an actual practical concern? Uh, yeah. Uh, if you are not guarding against that and there are ways to guard against that, uh, then this can be a concern. Uh, there are ways uh, to basically version your aggregate and the default implementation has a um, aggregate root version that it just um, ups every time um, it's reconstituted and when it applies an event. So um, this uh, version can also be used to basically guard against that. Um, you could set a, uh, for example, in your database, you could set a unique constraint on the combination of aggregate root ID and aggregate version. 
And this would prevent uh, from having uh, two uh, events at the same like um, version. So mm -hmm. if you were at version five before, the next two events would be uh, six and seven, right? So uh, that race condition that you described um, would basically both try to persist uh, number five. But the event isn't being persisted right away when you call apply, or is it? Uh, correct. So this is still something that you uh, need to account for. Uh, but that's basically... Uh, it's, not, it's not that different from like a non-event sourced system where you have people competing to modify a resource or something like that. Correct. Um, and there, like I would always, uh, if, if that's a practical uh, case, uh, then there are many, many tools that would uh, sort of uh, prevent you from doing that. Something like using an e-tag and validating that on start. Uh, or smaller transactions to limit the window where this can happen. Mm -hmm. Like there are a number of techniques that yeah. you can apply. It's not really an event sourcing specific problem though. No, no, yeah. correct. Yeah. Okay, cool. All right. So you've applied the event um, that you were recording. So the model or the aggregate is now in the same state that it would have been had this event already happened before it was reconstituted. So everything is like up to date. Yeah. Um, you're storing the event in just this boring old array of recorded events, which is just events that you've recorded during the life cycle of this aggregate during this request. Mm -hmm. And then it looks like you have this release events method, which I'm guessing is where some other piece of infrastructure is going to ask for the events that, that occurred related to this aggregate so it can put those in storage somewhere or notify anyone that, that cares about that stuff. So where Correct. does that happen and what does that look like? Yeah, so uh, it's good to reference why that, uh, like, um, uh, why that method is there and where it comes from. Uh, so the aggregate root interface uh, that you implement as an aggregate root uh, defines this. Um, and the aggregate root repository is responsible for actually collecting those events. So the default implementation of this is the constructing aggregate root repository. And you can see the persist method there, which takes an aggregate root, uh, actually calls that release events method, thereby um, sort of collecting all the staged events um, that the aggregate holds. Mm -hmm. So you get the released events and the recorded events is then uh, before it's actually returned, it's also like set to an empty collection. So you would never like redispatch uh, the same event multiple times. Uh, so it's actually set up for Got the it. next interaction with the model. So uh, from like the controller perspective, again, just to get people to have the right kind of picturing the right code here yeah. the simple publish case at its very simplest might look something like this aggregate root repository retrieve blog post id um blog post and that returns the blog post then you would just say blog post publish and then right after that you might do this aggregate root repository persist and then pass in the blog post again so that got it yep that's it it's like uh similar to people that used um something like Doctrine, 
like a data mapper uh, kind of um, libraries uh, have the same pattern where you uh, retrieve it from a repository and then in order to persist it, it needs to go back to a repository yeah. again. Got it. So when you're actually persisting, uh, what are the pieces kind of involved there? I think, I think we're going to be, I think there's a couple new kind of classes or interfaces uh, in event sauce that we haven't talked about so far that you'd be touching here. Correct. So uh, obviously you're going to go back to the repository to actually persist the messages. So like okay. when you persist an aggregate root object, you get the events and that's a, an array of events. Um, it, the, the code that per actually persisted maps over it and ensures those um, um, events are wrapped in message objects that we talked to yep. previously. And it's uh, also got a, um, a metadata uh, array uh, associated with it, uh, which ensures that the aggregate root ID um, is always associated with the uh, event. Got it. Um, because that's at message level, it uh, allows your events to be really clean because normally you could be like having to dispatch or record all the events and also apply the ag or also supply the aggregate root ID for everything. That kind of becomes like very, very boring very fast because it's yeah. basically useless typing. Sure. So by using this um, uh, message and the metadata associated with it, it's basically you don't even have to think about it. It's sort of like taken care of for you. Yeah. Uh, and it will never uh, be disassociated from, uh, from your uh, aggregate root ID ever. Got it. So it's sort of guarding against that. So, yeah, so you're going to persist these new messages that you've sort of built up from the released yep. events um, into the same message repository that we used to retrieve them uh, in the first place. And I, I guess that method is really just, just up to you and your your storage mechanism, right? So if we're, if we're using like a SQL example like we've been talking about, because I think that's probably what, what most people are most familiar with, mm -hmm. um, it might just be as simple as you know, inserting or inserting a bunch of new rows into your, your messages table based on the data attached to, uh, to the message, yeah, which might mean taking where, uh, the event, the JSON serializing it, storing the aggregate root ID in a separate column so that it's indexable and stuff like that. So you can fetch it out, whatever makes the most sense for you. But from an event sauce perspective, doesn't care. I, no, it doesn't care. It's completely transparent, like what you want to use, how you want to index it. Uh, basically, uh, some people also use the event store as something like a read model that they kind of want to consume or uh, use the database to create aggregations, like how many times that event X happen is sometimes something uh, they want to do. Um, or they could even directly using all the JSON functions that uh, like MySQL and Postgres have like extract data from it. It's like that's that's all possible. Got it. Um, some people want the um, uh, event type to be a column. You can do that. You don't have to. Uh, as long as you can query it using an aggregate root ID, you're basically good. 
Just wanted to take a quick break to thank one of this week's sponsors, and that is Cloudinary. So if I had to describe Cloudinary myself, it's basically just the best way to store and serve images that I've ever seen. In the past, I used to use generic storage services like Amazon S3 to store and serve images, uh, but after switching to Cloudinary, I genuinely cannot believe I ever did this stuff any other way. Uh, so here's one example of how Cloudinary has made my life easier. Uh, so you probably know that typically images are the heaviest resource your users have to download when they visit your site, right? Usually way more than your JavaScript or CSS. So in the past, I would spend a lot of time tweaking settings and tools like Image Alpha and Image Optim to try and optimize my image files so they weren't as large. Uh, with Cloudinary, I can just upload the full resolution file without even really thinking about it. And then by just adding a parameter to the image URL that I get back, uh, when I go to serve it on my site, Cloudinary will automatically optimize that image as best as it can, usually resulting in file sizes that are actually lower than what I was seeing when trying to optimize the images by hand. Uh, this is even more useful for like user uploaded images because instead of trying to do some fancy automatic image optimization in a background job on my own server or something, I can just send those images directly to Cloudinary from the browser, I request the optimized version back by adding that URL parameter and bam, I've got an optimized image at a really small file size. Uh, so there's an enormous amount of other cool stuff that you can do through the URL based API. That's really just scratching the surface but you can do stuff like request images at different sizes so you can serve smaller images on mobile devices so you're not wasting bandwidth. Uh, you can crop images to different dimensions. You can crop images using face detection, so just crop to the faces in an image. Uh, you can automatically add watermarks or text overlays or tons of different effects and stuff like that. It's a seriously impressive service. So Cloudinary has an amazing free plan where you can store 300,000 images and videos. Yeah, did I mention you can do all this crazy stuff not just with images, but also with the videos too. Uh, you get 10 gigabytes of storage and 20 gigabytes of monthly bandwidth on this free plan. Uh, so if you're not already using them, definitely head over to cloudinary.com and check it out. It really is one of my absolute favorite services that I use on my own projects. Thanks a ton to Cloudinary for sponsoring this episode. Back to the show. Okay, so it looks like the next piece now is uh, the dispatcher. So this is something we haven't talked about at all yet. And so what is the dispatcher doing with these messages? All right. So because the entire system is like message based, it's also really easy to be able to dispatch those mes messages like events across a system. So the dispatcher is sort of responsible for, for doing that. Uh, the dispatcher itself is again, a very simple interface, which is this the the interface message dispatcher, which has a public function that's called dispatch that takes um, a, an array of messages. Uh, so it can uh, publish multiple messages in one go. Uh, so so, what, so I'm, I'm trying to think like a practical use case for this. And I, th I think I'm going to, my guess is that the sort of things that you would do here are just like, work that your application needs to do as a result of some event happening that doesn't make that just doesn't really make sense to stuff in the model because based on kind of this architecture there's not really any way to do it so using the blog post example say you have like people subscribed to your blog and you want to send an email to everyone who who wants to be notified whenever a new post is published so if a blog post was published event uh, is raised from the blog post aggregate and you go to persist that aggregate, the dispatcher is going to dispatch that same method and something else in the system 
or the, sorry, that same event. And something else in the system can now listen for that and say, okay, um, here's the 57 people who want to be notified when you, you publish a, a blog post. I'm going to email all those people now. Correct. Yeah. That's, uh, that's basically it. Um, it is for consuming and uh, providing side effect like the one that you described. Yeah. Uh, but also for something that's called uh, having process managers. Okay. It's basically like a sim, like a, a sort of like uh, inspection computers or whatever that um, like uh, look at the entire process and maybe uh, then redispatch command if certain conditions are met. For example, if you have an inventory of multiple products and um, uh, when you uh, only have five products left, maybe you want to restock. Well, that's something that you would allow a process manager to do. Um, you don't want to bother the main process uh, with it, and the restocking um, logic can be uh, fairly independent from uh, the ordering process itself. Um, but it can purely respond to multiple streams of people ordering products and still uh, ensure that there's enough uh, product in stock for the next couple of deliveries. Got it. So looking at the docs, it looks like a process manager is, it's not like a, a code level concept necessarily. Like there's no like process manager interface or anything like that. All it is is just a consumer of events. It's more like an architectural kind of role or idea. Like I think of this, con this consumer is a process manager, but in the code, it doesn't actually say that it's just a cons consumer like any other type of consumer. Yeah. Like um, I, I named the, the interface consumer explicitly because um, I think you've got terms like event listener and listening uh, to me uh, as a conceptual level um, is like a sort of a, a passive thing. It's like I, I respond to something and then I'm not going to bother you with it. I'm just going to do my own action uh, maybe later, but it's actually none of your concern. I'm just observing you and doing my own stuff hmm. while a process manager is sort of this involved uh, thing where it uh, can also like a, uh, like a normal manager uh, say, uh, well, you, you need to do this now. Yeah. So, and, and process manager can also uh, sort of um, go over uh, boundaries that you might have put. So it could also act on a, a different uh, aggregate route altogether. So, um, so what does it look like to, to, I guess, configure the dispatcher to actually dispatch these messages to all the consumers that you kind of want registered with the dispatcher, I guess, from an event sauce kind of uh, implementation level perspective, like in terms of someone using event sauce to do this? Mm -hmm. Well, um, because the message dispatcher is so simple, um, you can basically use whatever you want for it. You can do uh, synchronous dispatching, which is a... Um, uh, final class that's already shipped with the default uh, uh, the core package uh, which just takes a couple of consumers and whenever it retrieves those messages will instantly also dispatch it uh, 
Uh, so it's never actually persisted or sent to a queue or anything. Uh, but you could also use the same serialization that we use for uh, persisting uh, the events in, um, in the database um, and sending them to a queue. So you could send it to Redis, or you could send it to RabbitMQ, uh, to basically anything. And as long as the two sides line up with the same serialization format, um, for your program, it's going to be transparent. Yeah. So the consumers don't really know if it was synchronous or if it Got was it. asynchronous, and they shouldn't know. Yeah. So, so, so with the consumers, I'm looking at um, the setup consumers documentation. Uh, what I'm trying to figure out is how do you so so each aggregate root repository gets its own dispatcher that's configured specifically for that aggregate root repository. Yeah. Correct. Well, yeah, uh, you could reuse. Uh, one that's tied into your framework or reuse the one that's tied up to your queue. But it it's a new really instance, matter. right? Like it's, it's, it has to be constructed with the consumers that make sense for that aggregate route and that don't care about things that happen to other aggregate routes. Yeah. Like Although I'm sure there's maybe a consumer that maybe gets, that maybe listens to events from multiple aggregate routes for, for some globally related thing or whatever, right? Like you have that flexibility, um, but how yeah. do you tell it? How do you set up a consumer such that it's only getting notified about the specific events that it cares about? Or do consumers always hear about every event that happened to the aggregate route that it's kind of involved with? Yeah, that's uh, that last uh, is the case. So um, as a consumer, you're basically always getting everything from a particular stream. And a particular stream of events would be everything that's associated with uh, an, a type of aggregate route. Got it. So within a consumer, you basically always check, well, is the event of the type that I am interested? If not, sure. uh, then just ignore it. And, and because and this is how you memory, do that is, is up to you, right? Like you could either... You just write a big switch statement in there if you want, where you're switching on the type of the event to dispatch to a particular method, do some yep. dynamic naming convention thing like we talked about before yep. that just like discards events where it doesn't have a matching method or whatever, whatever you really want, I guess. Yeah. I usually start out by just assigning the events to an event uh, variable. And then uh, I've got a, like a, a growing list of uh, if event is instance of and then an event class and then handle it in there, handling it there. And if it gets bigger, I will extract the methods and if the if statements start to uh, sort of uh, take up half a screen, then I'll rewrite it into something yeah. uh, like that. Makes sense. Uh, yeah. Cool. So I think there's a couple other pieces that we weren't like forced to talk about by like kind of taking this path through the code that I think maybe we, sh we should talk about. Uh, the first one that I'm not sure where it fits in is, and you've mentioned the word a couple of times is the idea of commands and event sauce. Um, yeah. So what is a command and event sauce and like, why haven't we run into it so far with our example? Right. So within our example, um, commands don't mean a lot to event sauce. Event sauce is all about the events, but since there is a system that creates classes with payloads, um, it's kind of a cheap way to reuse that uh, same mechanism to create our commands as well. 
So we can use the same YAML format um, to uh, create the events, and that basically gives an encapsulated um, way of specifying intent uh, when acting on a system. So is it is it really like not anything to do with event sauce? Like it's it's more about if you're using like a command bus oriented thing that's like totally optional. Like I'm, yeah. is that correct? So like if correct. we were so we might have like a publish blog post command instead of just calling blog post publish. Uh, or yeah, like uh, what you could do uh, is either uh, send that command to a command handler, and that would act on the aggregate root. So that would hold the aggregate root repository, fetch the aggregate root, and then uh, using the information that's placed in the command uh, would call the methods. You could also say uh, that based on the name of the command, it would uh, also uh, dynamically uh, invoke a method and just give the entire command Got as it. a payload. It doesn't really matter. So it's kind uh, of an optional part of event sauce, though, that's really just there to kind of unify some of your scaffolding if you're kind of including you want both to. of these kind of architectural pieces in your in your project and it doesn't really provide anything else around commands or command handling at all it's really just um we have this this format that we think is really nice and clean for specifying your events instead of writing out all these annoying classes by hand over and over and over again mm -hmm. uh, we might as well make it easy for you to reuse that for other things as yeah, well. so it, just it also helps like, if you have the uh, commands and the events, if you have that in the same like scope of like where you're looking, mm -hmm. uh, you know, okay, I've got these types of information that are available to me, then it's easy like to deduce what, what the payload for the event is. So got it. it's a, more like a, a, a mental reminder and like a, a way to keep things centralized than uh, having any, any benefit. Like, there's certainly a um, number of things in event source that are, could be considered opinionated. Um, in, in terms of commands, there's no benefit at all to have any type of opinionation. So we, uh, we supply this one thing and feel free to use it or feel free to completely ignore it. Um, it's up to you. Got it. Like, if, if you don't like to work with commands, yeah, don't. Cool. All right. I'm um, simple. Uh, so I guess the, the only other kind of uh, events, uh, event sourcing terminology idea piece that we haven't talked about and how that works in, in event sauce is projections. Um, so yeah. to quickly define that, I guess, for, for people who uh, maybe need a refresher from our last conversation, the way that I understand projections is that there's sort of a way to, to take some a bunch of information you have from the events that have happened and basically create some sort of view on top of that, essentially uh, into that data that's useful in one way or another. And like the example that we gave in the, in the last conversation was like a bank account uh, balance could be thought of as like a projection of the, all the transaction events that have happened or a report that shows you, what categories your spending has been in could be thought of as like another projection that was built from that from that same data. Um, so, so what does a projection from a code perspective look like in event sauce? How would you create projections? 
So the projections are basically, uh, again, just consumers. Um, they basically handle uh, messages one by one, and uh, based on old state that they have, they uh, create new state. Uh, so um, if you would take that example of the bank accounts, uh, then at the start, a, when a, a new bank account is set up, you could create a row with an aggregate root ID as the identifier with a balance of zero. And then as the messages comes in, uh, come in, uh, you have uh, uh, bank transfers, uh, you have cancellations, you have reservations. Uh, those all just mutate that number. So, that, so the routine in a uh, projection normally is that, uh, one, you have a dependency of some sort of repository that you're going to operate on. For instance, the, the balances uh, repository. Mm -hmm. uh, and whenever you handle it, you basically retrieve the, the current balance. Um, you mutate it based on uh, the events that took place, and then yeah. you re-persist it. Got it. So you can and almost think of it as like, um, it's like a denormalized, like separately stored like cache of state represented in a specific way that makes sense for a specific situation. So like in, in my head, I'm thinking like from an implementation perspective, if we're talking about like the spending report example in like a, a bank, you might have like a spending reports table and you might have like eloquent models in Laravel, for example, mapping to each row and all you're really doing in a consumer that's acting as like a, a projector, I guess is taking that new message that came in and finding out, okay, like what bank account is this message related to finding the spending report for that bank account by, you know, you, it could be as naive and simple as just like spending report colon colon find using like boring old Laravel active record syntax, mm -hmm. find the spending report, modify its state based on what happened in the event and then spending report arrow save. Um, and it's, yeah. and it's done. And, the interesting thing, I guess, is like this whole spending reports table is actually completely disposable because it can be rebuilt at any time based on the actual events, which are the real source of truth. So it just exists as sort of like a convenient way to show this data fast, basically, instead of having to rebuild it every single time from the whole like event stream every, anytime you need to, to do this stuff. So it's like a very denormalized sort of disposable uh, thing. Yeah. It's basically the state that you would normally have in your relational model that you would use to actually model with. Um, but during all the actions that you just uh, like do select blah, blah from database and get those models in order to pass to your views, uh, you would have specialized uh, models for just for that. Yeah. Uh, so you could have a, um, a model, like if we're talking about spending, like you've got also accounts, like you've got your account and then like uh, the other's bank account, you could also create a graph of like related bank accounts in terms of spending. You could also see like what kind of patterns uh, would be around that. And that's sort of like a projection that you could um, maintain mm -hmm. without having to pollute sort of like your main source of truth with. Yeah. So because you have this decoupling added data layer, you also have uh, all the opportunities are now 
open again. It's like you don't have to always duplicate everything. That's mostly what you end up doing if you've got a, like a data mapper or uh, active record kind of thing. It's like, okay, this is the state of the world now. And if you have events surrounding that, you basically say, well, this is the current state and you dispatch that. Um, that does not portray intent well. Um, so you don't know why things happen. If, like if you want counters, um, uh, for instance, like uh, I want to um, have a number of, uh, like what's it called when you uh, tell your credit card company to say, well, uh, uh, bounce this uh, transaction. Oh yeah, like a, like a charge back. Chargeback, yeah, that's the that's the terminology. So, like, if you want to count the number of chargebacks, uh, you can't do that based on a balance. So, you can only do that based on the intent of why something was withdrawn. Mm -hmm. The effect of sure. of that withdrawal if, is, of course, or hopefully, that you get back the money. Um, but that's not the entire story. So, yeah. having those uh, events and the associated intent allows for uh, far greater opportunities in terms of what you display analytical purposes in new types of interpretation, new types of data models that provide more or more in-depth insights. So in, in that regard, you're set up to basically use a lot more tools. Yeah. Uh, seemingly for free. Very cool, man. I think that's I think that's basically uh, all the pieces that uh, that I wanted to to get through, and we've been going for for quite a while now. So maybe it's a good time uh, to start wrapping things up. But uh, is there any other uh, interesting pieces or anything really important that you think we should we should uh, go over at all, um, so people kind of know everything they need to know to to get started with the tool and try it out? Uh, well, I would say. Um read the docs and read <laughs> the docs uh, uh, for uh, especially the, the part about testing. Okay. Uh, because testing, like we didn't really Yeah, we didn't really get that. to get into that. Uh, maybe that's for a, a third iteration of this. Sure. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that like, could be uh, good. Um, like testing is um, the most enjoyable thing in PHP if you use event sourcing, like uh, the being freed of uh, having to mock things, having to <laughs> set up states and evolving a model that touches um, uh, so many, like have to be unit tested in so many ways. Like uh, it's a burden that like lifts, uh, lifted off your shoulders <laughs> to, to use event sourcing. So I like, I, I'm, a, I'm ecstatic about that. It's like, it's like the, the number one sell for me, but it's a, it's a whole, a whole nother topic. Cool. And the docs explain it very well. And it's something that you really need to uh, sort of um, experience in order to appreciate. It's like, it's one of those things. Nice. Cool, man. All right. Well, um, yeah, this has been uh, really fun, man. I really enjoyed our last event uh, sourcing conversation. I really enjoyed this one too. And I'm, I'm looking forward to giving the, the library a spin and seeing how I can uh, incorporate some of this stuff into the way, way that I usually work and kind of see how things play out there. And because it sounds like, especially after this conversation today, um, I think event sourcing could sound like a pretty intimidating sort of thing, but mm -hmm. I think, uh, I can say that based on what we've walked through in this conversation, it's actually 
pretty simple stuff. Uh, once you kind of understand the ideas uh, from an actual implementation perspective and actually using these ideas doesn't really seem that that complicated to me. It seems like something that's pretty easy to actually start working with. Yeah, and, I think and uh, I'm sure a lot of that was, is is probably because of the effort that you put into making the library so approachable. Um, thank you, thank you. So uh, yeah, I'm excited to give it a go, and it looks like a, a really great a great place to start if you want to get into event sourcing with PHP. So so what's the best way for for people to keep up with? Uh, well, first to maybe check out uh, the library. Uh, and to keep up with with your work on it, well, uh, there's a um, event sauce PHP Twitter account that I uh, neglect a little, <laughs> uh, but uh, you can uh, just follow me on Twitter to keep up with updates. Like, if you uh, don't want to hear the rest of my ramblings, which could like involve things that have to do with the fly system or whatever, you can just uh, just use uh, follow that account. Um, yeah. I'll uh, just keep uh, posting updates there. Awesome. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you again, dude. Thanks so much for, for, for giving me your time. Yeah, no worries. Thank you for having me, man. Uh, thanks to Netlify and Cloudinary for sponsoring uh, Full Stack Radio this week. If you want to check out the show notes and see links to some of the event sauce documentation and stuff like that, they'll be at uh, fullstackradio.com slash 95. Uh, if you enjoyed the show, let me know on Twitter or shoot me an email or leave us a five-star review on iTunes. That's always appreciated. Thanks, everyone. See you next time.